This is TechSnap, episode 416, for November 15th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems Network and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined by Jim. What's up, everybody? Well, let's start things off today with some disappointing developments over at Ubiquity. I'm, of course, talking about the recent telemetry that's been added to their firmware. Yeah, Wes, that's been really disappointing. Uh, To be completely fair to Ubiquity, it doesn't look like they're probably pulling any worse telemetry than most manufacturers do from consumer Wi-Fi equipment at any rate. It, It certainly appears... That, you know, it's your usual grab for a large data set of performance-related telemetry that you can then feed to a machine learning algorithm and, you know, figure out ways to improve the performance of your devices. The problem is they've gone about it in just the absolute worst way possible. Uh, They didn't inform users ahead of time that they were going to do it. They didn't request consent. They didn't provide a way to turn it off. Uh, You know, they kind of hid the feature And, you know, making things worse when users complained and Ubiquity didn't seem very motivated to do anything about the complaints. When some people started just blocking the uh, telemetry servers that the Ubiquity equipment was phoning home to, there was a uh, there was a bug in the procedure that basically caused your APs to leak memory until they crashed. It does seem like communication has been a major problem here. The firmware that introduced this change made no mention of the new telemetry in its change log. And subsequent forum posts addressing the issue, they don't really seem to understand the community's concerns. Though, as you say, Jim, the data that they appear to be collecting seems to be limited to diagnostic information, and honestly, I'd probably opt in if I was given the choice. But I wasn't given the choice, and that's kind of the point. It's annoying enough to me as a general consumer worried about my home network. It's on a whole other level if you're an administrator of a secure network who's concerned about what information leaves that network. That's a great point, Wes. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to talk about telemetry in a fairly loose environment. But, uh, you know, if, if you're managing an environment that has maybe even legally mandated confidentiality concerns, it starts becoming a much bigger deal, you know, what you allow to escape that network. I mean, there are small businesses out there that are, you know, working on defense-related systems. And, you know, there are some fairly nasty strictures about, you know, what does or does not leave the network. We've kind of already said the majority of it. I mean, you know, nobody got asked about it. Nobody got the ability to opt out, let alone were asked to opt in. And there also hasn't really been a whole lot of transparency about exactly what the telemetry is. It's been basically... Ubiquity has been handling it a lot like Microsoft handles Windows 10 telemetry. It does what it does, and it's all hidden behind end-to-end encryption, and uh, deal with it. Right. I mean, um, some of the first comments basically said, look at the EULA that you've agreed to with these products. We can do this already. Which is, you know, it's a fancy passive-aggressive way of saying, screw you, I don't care what you think about it. This is unfortunately also not the only instance of Ubiquity really making its users reasonably angry at its actions recently. I don't know, Wes, are, are you a user of any of Ubiquity's camera products? No, you know, I've, I've seen them on the market, but never actually used them. I'm not either, but uh, they're pretty popular amongst, you know, the same kind of 
small businesses and consultants that cater to small businesses and and so forth that use the ubiquity Wi-Fi gear. Um, they have a very popular line of security cameras. And much like the Unify controller, there's a software controller for those cameras. And uh, you know, integrators are very happy with it because it scales out very well. You know, a, a pretty small PC can handle quite a large number of cameras. And it's all very flexible and performant. And, you know, it, it, you feel like you're doing your own thing. You can handle it. You can back it up. It's pretty good. Unfortunately, Ubiquity has decided that they really, really want you to get it amounts to a hardware controller. You can kind of think of it as the camera, uh, you know, equivalent to the cloud key, which I also was not a, fa- a fan of over on the Wi-Fi side. I see. So instead of having being able to host this controller software on on whatever hardware you have, now you need a device for all the cameras to talk to. Is that right? Exactly. You're supposed to buy their box. And it's not just that you're supposed to buy their box now and they're deprecating it and yada, 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 yada. They issued an update release to the software controller for the cameras, and this is what really, really made people angry. Um, in this new software release, all of a sudden now, it's it's showing ads to end users for the hardware controller and telling them that, you know, their current system is, you know, basically it's telling them it's not, it's not good enough and, you know, they need to get this other thing. Now, all this would be bad enough already, but just to add insult to injury, the hardware controller, a lot of these integrators are reporting, it doesn't scale. Now, you know, they're being expected to buy this hardware controller for their cameras that won't actually handle all the cameras they have, you know, in place of the simple, relatively, you know, low performance PC that was doing the job just fine. And their users are having to see things, you know, on top of the video telling them that their integrator has sold them the wrong thing and they need something supposedly better. Oh, boy. I think I'd be annoyed in just about any of those positions. So basically, uh, you know, Ubiquity, if you're listening, uh, we have loved your equipment for a long time, but not quite sure what you're doing right now or what the big push towards yeah, being awful marketing people is all of a sudden, but please cut it out. So Wes, I don't know if you knew that I went to Microsoft Ignite last week. Oh boy, that sounds like a new experience. Yeah, that was a big departure. You know, I have to be honest, my last Microsoft conference, so to speak, they had a value-added reseller convention, uh, you know, here in Columbia one year. This was like, I don't know, probably 2004, 2005, maybe. And uh, I I left that thing after like half an hour of what was supposed to be, you know, an all day deal because it, it was just a cheerleader rah-rah convention. So uh, myself and my one employee at the time did donuts in my neon in the mall parking lot on the way out from the theater where the thing was being held. And that was that. Ignite, honestly, you know, to a large degree, it was a much bigger, more expensive, shinier version of that. Uh, I would not have enjoyed it much as a conference. There was a lot of, you know, cool stuff in the vendor and exhibit hall to, you know, go ooh and ah at. But the talks were, they they weren't aimed at technical people. You know, they were aimed at executives. Right, like a business focused at this sort of Microsoft event. Yes and no. I mean, I cover business stuff all the time. I'm not going to hate on something just because it's business. The problem is it was aiming tech stuff at people who really weren't very technical, who were more business types. It was like the Today Show all about computers all day long, you know? But with that said, I mean, so that was the talks. I uh, Clearly, I did not enjoy the talks, but 
uh, I got to speak, you know, one-on-one with Microsoft executives about things that uh, they've got going on. And these were absolutely technical people and, you know, ready to talk all the way down to brass tacks about the stuff that they were doing. One of my favorites of those was talking to uh, Dr. Ant Roustran about his project Silica, which uh, I don't think he called it Silica. I think he just said glass the whole time that we were talking. (laughs) Have you had to work much with long-term cold storage, Wes? No, thankfully, I don't have that much data. I've needed to look at it a few times um, in my disreputable undergrad in my 30s because I could days. I ended up getting involved in a project that was working with uh, the USC Libraries Rare Collections Department, building them a database application to track their collections and you know, let them know when it was going to be time to renew them, you know, because their storage could be expected to to start degrading. Right. Of course. I mean, any material eventually degrades and you got to you got to be on a faster cycle than that. Yeah. They needed to know when it was time that they really needed to digitize their analog recordings and for their digital stuff. You know, they, they needed to have some idea of when it was time to refresh the storage medium there. And uh, you know, like I said, this was the early 2000s and everybody had become aware by then that, you know, the supposed 50-year promise of burned CD-ROMs was, you know, so much hot garbage, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, some of the CD-ROMs that you burn, they they could last for a decade. Some of them might not last more than two or three years uh, before the, you know, the, the ink starts degrading and you start having trouble reading them. You know, I'm, I'm looking through this problem and I'm analyzing this and I'm looking at the, the scale of what, it's a relatively modest collection. You know, this is the the rare collections department. It's mostly like audio interviews from a couple of decades, you know, at a university. This is not enormous. We're not talking the Library of Congress, right? But I start looking at, you know, projected like how frequently you would need to re-record these things when you're really honestly not sure how long your CD-ROMs are going to last. And the conclusion that I came to was, you know, it's a waste of time to just try to verify them because in the time that you spend verifying them, you might as well have just gone ahead and duplicated them anyway. And the big expense in either verification or duplication, it wasn't the media. It was, you know, it was literally just the time to do it. Um, Even if you've got effectively free undergrad labor, if you've got a collection of like 10,000 CDs and you need to refresh them all, and you've got two or three undergrads, each of whom has, you know, a CD-ROM drive and a, C- a separate CD burner, it's going to take pretty much an entire year to complete that. Yeah, I suppose there is a lot of overhead as you change discs out and wait for the burning to actually complete. Absolutely. And you absolutely have to do, you know, I said it's a waste of time to verify the already burned stuff, but when you burn it, oh, you better believe you've got to have the verification turned on on the burn process because... Anybody who's ever burned CDs know, you know, you, you make some coasters. Yes, absolutely you do. And so when you're talking about a year of time to refresh a collection uh, that, and you need to do that, you know, every, honestly, even if you're doing it every five years, you might lose some data, you know? So it, it's just the conclusion I came to is, you know, this is ridiculous. It doesn't work if you really want to make sure that you maintain your entire collection in pristine quality for as long as you need it to. You don't want cold storage. What you really want is a big RAID array, uh, ZFS, obviously, 
um, you know, with, uh, with active monitoring and scrubbing and, uh, you know, making sure that nothing has degraded. You have a little bit of parity, you have replication from one site to another, and even doing all that with hot storage, it's still going to cost less money than trying to deal with these ridiculous little optical disks. And into this reality enters Project Silica, and it's doing things a bit differently. So Project Silica, uh, it is an optical technology, but that's about the only thing it really shares with uh, CD-ROMs. Silica is not a rotating media. It is literally just a block of glass, um, fused silica specifically, and uh, a femtosecond laser, the same kind of laser that would be used, you know, like for cataract surgery. It uh, burns little tiny imperfections inside the glass. So they have a lensing arrangement that focuses the laser and the actual focal point of the laser inside the glass is, you know, where it makes these little bubbles and they're, you know, they're voxels. You may be familiar with that term from Minecraft, you know, referring to a 3D pixel. But yeah, so you, you burn those with a laser and uh, you you can read them basically just boils down to with a high quality microscope and they use a machine learning algorithm to, you know, kind of learn how to interpret the uh, the changes in polarity, it gets fairly technical on the physics end of it. Wow. But the upshot is you've got this little block of glass and, uh, you know, the thing should stay readable for thousands of years. And it's impervious to just about everything but hitting it with a hammer. Um, if it gets boiled in a pot of water for a week, it'll be fine. Uh, exposed to radiation, it'll be fine. Huge magnetic fields, fine. Uh, you know, drop it in a vat of acid. It may depend on the acid, but, you know, for the vast majority of them, fine. Doesn't matter. The only thing that's really going to, you know, screw it up is literally if somebody hits the thing with a hammer. And ideally, you'll try to avoid that. Ideally, you will try to avoid that. But yeah, the economics of it, that whole rambling, you know, digression about uh, my undergrad experience, you know, with the archivists in the Rare Collections Library just kind of brings home that, you know, the... The time that you can expect this media to last before you need to refresh it, it's crucial. You know, I like to make the comparison for Project Silica with uh, the classic science fiction novel, The Moat in God's Eye, where, you know, you had these aliens that had cyclic collapses of civilization and they had these very important technology libraries that would only unlock, you know, once the new civilization had learned a little bit about astronomy, and then they could teach themselves the things that they had lost in the last collapse of civilization. This, this would be good for something like that. But even above and beyond that, you know, you kind of need that just to make it cost effective to say, okay, you know, I, I've saved this and I can trust that I've saved it. I don't have to constantly be, you know, verifying it and making sure it hasn't been destroyed. Yeah, I like that. You know, there are many challenges in in the question of how best to preserve knowledge through time, but we will definitely need a resilient and easily readable medium to do that. And maybe that's Project Silica. You know, interestingly, it also happens to be kind of beautiful, at least the um, sample of the movie Superman that they've provided. The silica blocks, they look a lot like the knowledge crystals from that movie. When Superman's in his fortress of solitude at the North Pole and, you know, he's downloading all the whatever from Krypton. He's, he's putting big chunks of, uh, uh, of glass and, uh, what, yeah, I don't know. Kind of looks like a, a USB hub, maybe something like that. Either way, project silica is a lovely shade of blue and looks a heck of a lot better than a CD or DVD, let alone a tape drive. Now, Jim, I'm curious, how does project silica compare to other existing storage technologies? I'm going to harp again a little bit on the long-term aspect of this because I think it's very important, especially 
coming from that archival background to a degree that I do, one of the things that people complain about with digital media is, you know, this idea that, oh, well, you know, it doesn't last. You know, we have stone tablets from thousands of years ago, but all this all this information that we have now, it's just going to be completely lost. That is a valid concern. I think it's also pretty widely misunderstood. Uh, you know, very, very, very few books or stone tablets or clay tablets or any other way that humans have ever stored information actually stands the test of time. It's not an accurate thought to think, oh, well, you know, if we print a book, then that book will be around in 500 years. You know, No, it won't. If you're trying to read a paperback from the 60s, it doesn't work that way. Um, they require very careful care and not a little bit of luck. But it is true that most digital media degrades a lot faster than that. Class, on the other hand, you know, we've talked about the physical characteristics, but it's probably also worth talking about, you know, how discoverable it is. I mentioned that, uh, you know, Project Silica uses machine learning algorithms to actually read the data off of there. But what we didn't talk about yet is the first few tracks that are laid down onto a Project Silica block. They're, uh, they're ground truth data. You can think of it as kind of like a Rosetta Stone that you can rapidly train an ML algorithm or a human who doesn't know anything about how the data is stored. They can very easily see those patterns and figure out how to work upwards from there. You, know, you start out with stuff like one, two, three, four, one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four. You know, these are patterns that are very, very easy to detect and realize, okay, I'm starting to learn about this encoding. Patterns you'd think anyone investigating a Project Silica artifact would find very interesting and should stand out. Are there any other benefits of having this ground truth data? Even if they're not really looking specifically for that pattern, if they're looking for any pattern, it's just going to jump out and slap them in the face. And once you've got that, you can work your way up to bigger and better things. Everything about that is just, it's pretty freaking sweet. I, I really am in love with the idea of, you know, like, I don't know if the microscopes were good enough yet, but like 1950s era scientists coming across just like a library of these things and, you know, laboriously working their way up from the ground truth tracks with literally nothing but just microscopes and, you know, having this entire just generations of, you know, information science unfold before them and like learning what machine learning is and, you know, yada, yada, yada. You imagine how overwhelming that would be. Oh man, you would be so thrilled. Like, you know, I think it goes beyond thrilled to just like odd. I mean, imagine, you're in the 1950s and, you know, your computer technology is vacuum tubes and entire buildings, <laughs> you know, for a few bytes of, of RAM. And, you know, you you're, you slowly start uncovering this and you realize what's in it and how much it's leading you through and how far away you are from any of that stuff. Like, oh, my God. I don't know. I, I think it's pretty cool. It's it is very cool. Uh, at least something we'll have to keep an eye on. Imagine the different directions the technology might, you know, get taken if somebody with a different generation set of motivations just like had all this in front of them and, you know, were just able to roam in whatever direction they pleased through these generations of, you know, research and, and, and whatever. The cynical point of view is, you know, you're just going to get like a cargo cult mentality and nobody really learns how to do anything because they're just, oh, we just, you know, mine the glass for for information. But I don't think it works that way, man. I think people that have very different motivations now have all of this available to drive in different directions than the people who originally created it did. You wind up with something very different. It can go in totally unexpected directions once the uh, base technology is available. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm ready to read those novels, man. This, this is a plot point that needs to come to science fiction. 
Jim, you mentioned your recent visit to Ignite, and it's got me curious. You know, we also saw the announcement that Microsoft's new Edge browser, or at least the new version, well, it's going to come to Linux, at least eventually. And I kind of want to know what your take on the modern Microsoft is. You know, we've seen a lot of discussion about how Microsoft's changed after their acquisition of GitHub and their new releases of various open source projects and converting old projects to open source in some cases. You've been around for a long time, used and deployed many Microsoft products. What do you think? You know, Wes, everybody hates a centrist, but um, I, I think that's where I am on this. I think almost everybody has Microsoft's big, we love open source push pretty wrong. You know, you've basically got two camps. You've got people who are like, you know, oh, this isn't your father's Microsoft. You know, this is the open source Microsoft that loves Linux and everything's kumbaya and, you know, happy, happy, and there's no problems. And then you have your people who are just going to die mad about the Halloween documents, you know, back when Microsoft described Linux as a cancer and said it was something they needed to eradicate. Those famous quotes. There's, there's, there's a long history here, so some camps are quite skeptical still. The, yeah, there is a very long history, and I think skepticism is certainly warranted, but I don't see many people who are skeptical but open-minded. Like I said, it's usually either, you know, everything's happy, happy, kumbaya, or... You know, that's those awful people that tried to kill my beloved Linux. And there's not a whole lot of in the middle takes. And I think I have to kind of come down in the middle here. Um, I do not think everything is happy and, you know, kumbaya and sing camp songs together with Microsoft and open source, particularly in the sense that Linux folks like us usually interpret open source. With that said, um, I do think that Microsoft has come to realize the business advantages of open source and of having a healthy balance between open source infrastructure that is shared amongst a lot of people and, you know, lowers the barriers to entry for contribution on, you know, from both sides on a project, mm -hmm. uh, the balance between that and, you know, the proprietary stuff that you don't want to share that you're making your money on. I believe that Microsoft has learned that they only have so many developer man hours and it's just not productive for them to say, well, we're going to re-implement everything that Linux has ever done. They, they can't, no matter how good their developers are, no matter how many of them they try to hire, they, they just can't keep up. You're kind of talking about the accessible nature of open source tools. You, you can't avoid them. They're just too useful. And these days they're everywhere. Yeah. And that's why the majority of, you know, Azure's infrastructure is Linux. There's just no getting around it. You're going to have, more equipment and, uh, you know, more power consumed and lower performance if you do anything else. So they've learned to embrace that. They have learned to understand, you know, how to build boundaries between the open source parts and the proprietary parts and which licenses work well for which things and when to contribute upstream versus, you know, when to do something yourself. And that's all a good thing. It's a good thing for everybody. I, I, I will say I don't think they're out to poison open source and Linux anymore. There was a time that Microsoft absolutely was out to do that. And I don't think they're out to do that anymore. However, it's also kind of instructive to go to an open source conference that Microsoft has a presence at. They're going to be handing out Microsoft loves Linux t-shirts and, you know, tuxes with Microsoft loves Linux and a windows logo blazoned on the chest and just everything everywhere is this never ending mantra of how much Microsoft loves Linux. When you go to Ignite, I, I did not see anything there that said Microsoft loves Linux anywhere. 
Now, they do talk about open source. They talk about the open source behind Azure, and they talk about their contributions to projects, and they talk about, you know, how you can collaborate on GitHub, uh, you know, with projects that Microsoft themselves are working on. And I think that's instructive, and I think that's where they're really at. They're never going to be big, giant hippies like you and me, but they are learning how open source fits into business. Right. It's a it's a modernized Microsoft that is trying to be pragmatic about open source as has less of an agenda there. But at the end of the day, it makes money selling software and services. And, yeah, you know, like you mentioned before, Edge is coming to Linux, which is uh, it's pretty strange. You know, the, the browser that nobody was willing to use on Windows is coming to Linux. Yay. But uh, the new Edge is not the old Edge. And um, I don't feel like Microsoft has really put out a strong message on why they want to push the new Edge, much less, you know, have a, a Linux version of it. But I, I think we've probably figured that out. When you look at the new Edge, which is based on, you know, Chromium upstream, just like Google Chrome is, now there's not a Linux beta at all right now. You can get a Canary or a beta version in Windows, Mac OS, Android, or iOS. Linux just says coming soon. So I, I fired up in a VM, and honestly, it's you have to look pretty hard to tell the difference between it and Chrome open side by side to the same web page. You can do it, but you really have to look close. And I think that's actually kind of helpful in letting you figure out why Microsoft want to do this because one of those differences and the only really significant difference is when you click the profile link, you know, uh, Chrome always wants you to log in with a Gmail account to save your preferences and your passwords and replicate it all and yada, yada, yada. Now that profile link button is still there in edge, but instead of wanting you to log in with a Google account, it wants you to authenticate against Azure active directory. And I think that alone is probably the big driving factor in why Microsoft wants this thing to be completely cross-platform and everywhere. Again, it's all about the cloud. And, you know, people who are already invested in that Microsoft infrastructure, the Office 365, the Azure AD, you know, Teams, all this stuff, it's probably going to be pretty attractive to them to say, hey, all these things that I need to unlock, I can still unlock that with my truly single SSO, the Azure AD, that, uh, you know, it's it belongs to my company. It's not just this thing that I went out and got from Google. Now, that makes sense if you're already deeply invested and suddenly there's a browser that plugs right in. It's also interesting because I think there are maybe many these days that might trust a proprietary browser from Microsoft more so than the Google version. And it's an interesting case of, you know, using the uh, open source base of Chrome, Chromium, to, to Microsoft's advantage, and they really are adopting uh, open source. Yeah, exactly. They they really are. That's going to do it for this episode of TechSnap, but don't worry, if you'd like more, just head on over to techsnap.systems. There you'll find our complete back catalog, the show notes for this episode at techsnap.systems slash 416, plus easy ways to subscribe or get in touch. If you'd like even more great Jupiter Broadcasting content, just head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you can find all the other fine shows on the network. If you haven't tried it already, make sure to check out Linux Headlines, another show I'm on, where we aim to give you all the open source, Linux, and cloud news that you need each day in three minutes or less. If you'd like more Jim, well, of course, you can find him writing over at arstechnica.com and we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and Jim, you're at JRSSNet. The whole network's there too, at Jupiter Signal. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks.
See you in a couple of weeks, everybody. 